Welcome to Seattle Sucks, a podcast about hating the city that we love. And other cities while we're at it. Oh, hell yeah. <gasps> because you... you s- what do you mean, Greg? <laughs> well, uh, today <laughs> uh, we have Rebecca Parson, candidate 2020, Washington 6th, and we're going to talk about Tacoma. Anyway, we normally have uh, two episodes a week, but one of them that this would have been we normally release behind the dreaded paywall on the yeah. patreon yeah but we decided to share this with you because uh rebecca is really cool and you yeah. should uh, hear about her from her yeah i mean the freaks were really pissed they <laughs> love hoarding that content from you that sweet sweet content but we had to do it we pried it from yeah. their freak hands yeah and uh Greg, is it not correct that we have many congressional candidates being interviewed behind the paywall? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, man, yeah. All You know, so many primary challenges, so many Patreon-only episodes. Some say that Adam Schiff wouldn't have won had we not interviewed him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, some say that. Some, some have just said that now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, um, enjoy this uh, interview and um, give us money. Do it. You can hear more. There's a backlog of episodes you can hear. Just give up one Starbucks latte a month. And for one, that market ask. price, you can hear all that content. Yeah. Also, Patreon fans, I'm very sorry about last week. That was my fault. Just know it was my fault. They, they okay? literally don't even know what you're talking about. You no. will. When it comes out, you'll know what I did. But we had an episode come out three days late. Oh, my gosh. Dun, dun, dun. It was me. Okay. It's yeah. always Colin's fault. Mm-hmm. If, even if it isn't, he will apologize. Anyway, on, on to the episode. All right. special guest rebecca parson thank you for joining us hi thanks for having me yeah thanks um, for coming yeah you oh, definitely you traveled a long distance mm-hmm. and that's because you are a candidate for washington's 6th congressional district mm-hmm. yeah i came all the way from tacoma exactly <laughs> uh, for us to, that's to like, your fair city that sucks yeah yeah, yeah if for the like five weirdos that listen to our show from out of state they're gonna look at a map <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they're gonna be like tacoma to seattle yeah. that's like for like a suburb to a city or something like that but they don't understand it is the most awful fucking traffic mm-hmm. that has yeah. ever existed. Yeah. yeah, seventh circle of hell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if hell was a straight line instead of a circle, <laughs> it would be Sorry. the distance between Tacoma and Seattle. Because um, yeah, you can't even take the light rail yet, right? Like you can get you can get just past the the airport, right? Yeah, there's a Sounder train. It only runs during certain mm. hours, and then there's a bus. The buses get super packed, so a lot of people have to stand the entire way from oh, Tacoma no. to Seattle. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sitting awful. in traffic, standing on a bus. I don't know. I don't know which is worse. Well, yeah. Man- is... Managerial liberalism would tell you that was good for you. <laughs> or, yeah. <work. laughs> That's exercise. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you works. are uh, primarying the incumbent mm-hmm. sort of corporatist Democrat. And I, I gather you wanted to come on this show because... <laughs> Um, we think of you recognized immediately that we think of Seattle as a punchline <laughs> in the way that everyone has always thought of Tacoma. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, we're yeah. here yeah. for it. Yeah, I think this all started when a friend of mine tweeted something 
related to your podcast and I responded and said, do you think they'd have me on to talk about why Tacoma's better? And so that's why I'm here. No. Yeah, as the only uh, Seattle-based, Seattle podcast that has no like city spirit for this <laughs> yeah. city. Like, we're, that's cool. you want to come yeah. shit on this place? I mean, yeah. great. Yeah. I'm not promising to say anything nice about Tacoma. <laughs> yeah. But I might Just say some nice things. Mutual disparagement. Yeah, great. Yeah. I mean, uh, really, at the end of the day, I bet we'll find out that really we're more alike Aww. than different. It's like Tacoma, Seattle bipartisanship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're both awful. Yeah, we're, we're all in it together. Um, it, it might be useful for uh, all the Seattleites that listen to the show to know what the 6th Congressional District actually is. And so, I mean, that's part of Tacoma. It's not all of Tacoma. It's most of Kitsap Peninsula. Uh, which includes Bainbridge and uh, it's the Olympic Peninsula as well. And I think there's five counties mm-hmm. in, in that district, it's which big. is which is pretty wild. I mean, that's that's a giant um, a giant swath of land there. Um, <clears throat> and now, did you say that you're living in Tacoma? Presently? Yeah, I live in Tacoma, and yeah, it is a giant district, and it's very diverse. I mean, Bainbridge and Aberdeen are very different from each other in a lot of ways, but I have found commonalities going across the district, so the people who work at the Safeway on Bainbridge can't afford to live there, mm. um, and yeah. the people in Aberdeen just can't afford to live, yeah. um, and there's the city of Aberdeen, town of Aberdeen, for example, has 16,000 people. It's a population. They have 1,000 homeless people, so one in 16 Jeez. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely want to get into the discussing yeah. Aberdeen, but we yeah. generally will save the most depressing elements. But yeah, so you know, it, it's a huge district, right? Um, and one that is uh, a little different than, say, uh, Seattle, right? In mm-hmm. that you have rural towns that are old, sort of like lumber towns like mm-hmm. Aberdeen and stuff like that. And then uh, awful cesspools like Bainbridge. Yeah. That's your words, not mine. <laughs> well, I just lost the election. <laughs> we should also shit like, on my like, own district. May you know point out for people uh, tuning in from the sixth that this election is actually next year. It's that's not true. The one yeah. that's yeah. coming up, and the ballots are dropping for it's November um, twenty twenty. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's, it's the big one. But you can just write Rebecca's name on any ballot you have between now and then. And turn it in. Yeah, you can do that. You can, you can do I'll whatever you want. That's what they call that. That's that's the early voting. I keep hearing about. Right. right. You just Something go ahead like and that. write it on mm-hmm. the thing and send it in. Yeah, I don't think you're mistaken about that. <laughs> so, let's. I mean, before we start talking too much about like um, the district and how you know we're the same but different and all that, maybe we should hear a little bit about your biography. Like, for example, um, astonishingly, but not at all, really. Um, apparently both the first woman and the full first queer person to even like think about running in this district yeah it's pretty wild i'm not not just the first to ever hold the seat but ever to even run yeah and um so it's Which, pretty weird that's wild. <laughs> when i realized that i was like that's wow huh. i wasn't expecting that <laughs> yeah but in terms of my background i i grew up moving around a lot my dad was in the foreign service so i grew up overseas moving every 2 to 4 years cool and uh yeah and then i was born in virginia and then 
overseas till I was about 12. Then we moved back and um, bounced around a lot and then uh, moved to Tacoma. And I really loved it. And I, you know, my cousin is from Alaska. He lives there and he's like, oh, Tacoma. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? It, it's really nice. I really like it. The, mm. <laughs> the aroma's gone. I don't <laughs> Gertie but, no longer gallops. Yeah. Gertie, no, doesn't. Um, and we also have 11 Wonders of Tacoma and the giant Pacific octopi living in Gertie are one of oh, them. Oh, wow. Just FYI. Oh, wow. That's super cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, yeah. But it's really nice. I like it. And um, yeah, I love Tacoma. I think my favorite Tacoma anecdote is the first time I went to Tacoma City Council and there were people there um, protesting something the city council had done, and they thought that TPU, Tacoma Public Utilities, needed to be audited. And so this woman got up, and she was like, blah, 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 and what we need is, and then she couldn't think of the word. And somebody in the audience goes, audit. And then somebody else goes, audit, audit. And we all just start chanting, audit, audit, audit. <laughs> it's like, it's like, like Tacoma City government is like Parks and Rec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's no Leslie Nope. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. all just really passionate and they're not listening to us yeah. and uh, we're like do, do what we want and they won't listen and uh, I don't know I find it is really endearing it's like yeah. a perfect Tacoma story <laughs> uh, uh, so say Seattle city government is also like Parks and Rec but only in that we have the Pat and Oswalt character just rambles on and on about <laughs> shit, except for he's also really racist <laughs> that, that's our addition um so, you know, you're also not just a resident of Tacoma, but a member of DSA, mm -hmm. and I assume DSA is supporting your, you know, candidacy or whatever. Yeah. But what, what brought you into left politics? Well, I, when I was in college, I had friends who talked a lot about the Zapatistas, and then mm -hmm. for a summer trip, like summer study abroad, kind of, uh, they went on a program in Mexico, a couple of my friends, where they went to um, the Zapatista language school that they have. And um, after college, I went to Guatemala to learn Spanish. And um, I also wanted to, I had heard about the Zapatistas and had their form of self-governance and found it really fascinating. So I went to the language school for a week and then I connected with a local nonprofit um, to do two 10-day trips um, to Zapatista Village as a human rights observer. And um, so basically you're just, at that time, uh, the situation was such that the Mexican government was funder, funding um, groups of like neighboring villages that were not Zapatista to threaten the Zapatista villages. And just mm. having like white foreigners there would um, prevent most of it. And then if anything did happen, we could document it. So I did that. And it was really inspiring and cool to see because um, they are you know, indigenous, uh, Mayan. And, you know, subcomandante Marcos is called subcomandante or was because there is no commandante. There's no there's mm. only the subcommandant. And he's just a spokes. He was a spokesperson, and uh, you know the infant mortality has gone down, maternal mortality has gone down, literacy is up. Like women's rights are much stronger than in surrounding areas, and it was really inspiring. So, and around the same time, I read the Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, mm -hmm. and that op opened my eyes to a lot of things. So, um, then I kind of you know did a lot of other stuff over the years, and then when I was in Tacoma, I started seeing uh, popping up on Facebook. Um, these so there was an apartment building called the Tiki Apartments in Tacoma, where a developer, I believe, from Seattle. So thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're welcome. 
um, bought this apartment building and evicted everybody. Uh, they had been, many of them had been living there for years and years. Yeah, and, sounds about like Seattle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, like 14 day eviction notice, which was legal. And um, this was like really the last stop for a lot of people there, like people with uh, felonies who couldn't find anywhere else um, on disability, um, people in recovery. And it was like, this was their stop between being at home and not being in a home. And so uh, evicted them so that he could renovate and raise rents. And mm-hmm. out of that came the Tiki, uh, it turned into the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee. And I wasn't involved in DSA at that point, but Tacoma DSA was very involved in um, helping with that. It's a tenant-run organization, but um, DSA and, and tenants in DSA were very involved. Mm-hmm. And so the first... Um, kind of whispers of DSA that I saw was on Facebook, these socialist longshoremen showing up to the Tiki apartments to help the tenants move. Yeah. I was like, this yeah, is yeah. really badass. Yeah, yeah. Like they're really doing the work. It's not just political, like that's part of it, but also like these people need somebody to help them move. Longshoremen yeah. showing, showing up, up anywhere makes an impression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just showed up with their trucks and helped them move. And um, I had friends who were involved um, as well, and like one of them's like, yeah, so and so, like her phone got shut off, and she needs thirty bucks to get it back on, mm-hmm. and all just just like really practical stuff being taken care of at the same time that they were forming a, you know, democratic tenant-run organization, which is like so different from the typical nonprofit hierarchical, you know, liberal yeah. do-gooder mm-hmm. model. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, like they went and like showed up at city hall and demanded changes and they got them. And we've had tenant, um, uh, changes to tenant tenants rights laws in Tacoma. Mm. There's now a fund for relocation assistance if you're low income. And so that was kind of like my intro to DSA and like what the work that DSA does. And then AOC winning, talking about herself as a democratic socialist. Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of when I decided to join DSA. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, that story about the Tiki building, I think, leads to sort of an interesting point about Tacoma, which is that the, you know, absolutely insane housing situation that's been happening in Seattle, right, has spread like a illness to all the surrounding areas and Tacoma being one of them, right? So mm-hmm. the, you know, rising rents, you know, impossible to buy houses and stuff, all that has now moved to Tacoma, right? Mm-hmm. It has, yeah, definitely. A lot of people from getting priced out of Seattle moving to Tacoma, but then a lot of people even who move to the area for a job and they mm-hmm. can't even afford Seattle to start with, so they live in Tacoma and just commute. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a, the paper called uh, Tacoma the hottest housing market in the country um, because wow. it has the <coughs> highest uh, rate of rental increases. So, you know, it's not as high as New York or San Francisco, but just the rate at which mm-hmm. it's rising is the highest yeah. in the country. And like, I'm a renter and it, my rent has risen 16% in the last three years. And it's really a lot yeah. <laughs> and um, a lot to deal with. And people even, you know, people in Seattle are getting priced out moving to Tacoma, which is pricing out people mm-hmm. out of Tacoma and they're yeah. moving to Lakewood. And it's like, but then once you hit Olympia, it starts to get expensive again. So then, you know, where do you go? It's just kind of this endless That's flow. And that contradiction sort of like sums up our times. Uh, it's like the hottest housing market. Yeah. Like you want to yeah. fuck it, but it wants to evict you. What? I, where do you even start? Exactly hottest. Like we had, the, like this past winter was really bad. Like people uh, died of exposure in Tacoma. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like I don't. It's pretty not a hot housing market for them. No. It's just for yeah. the real estate developers. Yeah, and I and I know that like over the last year, I've definitely like heard in the winds, you know, hear people talking or whatever. He'd be saying like, "Oh, you know, uh, I have a friend who wants to move up here, but it's so expensive, so I'm telling him just to go to Tacoma or whatever." And I remember the one that really like kind of struck me was when uh, over Pride, 
uh, a lot of people in Seattle are like, oh, fuck Seattle Pride. Let's go to Tacoma Pride. Yeah. And I mean, that's all well and good and great. I'm glad that they feel comfortable at Tacoma. It was one of those things where it's like, this can't be good if you're paying rent in Tacoma. <laughs> like, you know, like everybody in Seattle wants to come down there. That's not a good sign. Like, yeah, yeah. That's generally not good. No, that's yeah. what everybody, um, that's been like a, a narrative around Tacoma, like just that you hear in Seattle is, well, as, you know, Seattle gets priced out and gentrified, um, Tacoma's cool now. Mm-hmm. But what that seems to really mean is like Tacoma's just at an earlier phase of gentrification. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where like, oh, there's some restaurants and bars actually opening up, opening up in some neighborhoods that you maybe can afford to live near. Yeah, and well, yeah. just like, get, just wait, Tacoma. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, wait. It's, it's how Brooklyn became cool in the '90s because nobody yeah. could afford Manhattan anymore, right? And yeah. like, uh, yeah. yeah, it's it, uh, it's one of those things that I think speaks to uh, part of your platform, right? That you're right on, which is this idea of social housing, right? To mm-hmm. try and ease this. I mean, maybe we could talk a little bit about that and. Yeah, because I mean the housing across the district, like in Tacoma, there's a lot of gentrification, especially on the hilltop, and people getting um, priced just priced out. They can't afford to live there anymore. And the hilltop is a predominantly African American community, really strong cultural heritage and history there. And so there's a lot to lose, you know, and there's a lot being lost as that gentrification is happening. Um, and in Tacoma is gentrification, but when I talk to people on the Northern Olympic Peninsula, they're like, yeah, these rich assholes from Seattle and uh, California, and they don't use the word gentrification, but they're getting priced out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all over in Aberdeen, you know, people, there are college students sleeping in their cars. And, uh, you know, if you have a town of 16,000 and 1,000 homeless, something's obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, as especially, you know, democratic socialists, like my view of it is that um, the housing market has become just a profit generator. And that's the motive. Like the main purpose of housing is to generate profit, not to house people, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of what it should be. And so for me, it's like the two big prongs of a housing policy to fix this. One is rent control. And um, obviously, Shama Swant's uh, very vocal on that in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And then in Tacoma, the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee is vocal on it as well. Um, You know, we do have the statewide ban, but, uh, you know, people are working on it. And we've had wins in Oregon and New York and I think California as well. Um, But what's interesting and that I didn't realize until I started looking into it was that we used to have national rent control. Uh, We had it during World War II. And then uh, Richard Nixon also instituted it um, as a ploy to make himself more popular, and it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Truman wanted it because he thought it would stave off communism. Mm -hmm. Go figure. But so we have had it. Probably not the wrong idea. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I looked into it, and it's just... uh, it's tough because so much of housing policy is hyper local and then you get mm-hmm. the worries like from city council or the developers or whatever like oh well if we get rid of the tax breaks for developers then we'll have capital flight nobody will want to build here anymore and yeah. you know poor old Tacoma I was like Tacoma's great everybody wants to move here now we don't need to keep giving them money to build unaffordable housing but yeah. Yeah. that's a thing <laughs> well like this is interesting because you know we're in, obviously like we're sort of a Seattle centric show and we're right in the middle of a big election you know uh seven city council seats up um of nine yeah yeah and they're you know and actually ballots should be out you're listening to this they should be like in your mailbox or on your coffee table right now um but we've been talking a lot about that i've been out door knocking for sean scott and a lot of the narrative uh at least a lot of what i've been talking about is like so sean scott in district four is talking like so shama in district three is talking a lot about rent control Sean Scott wants to build public housing as a city. 
And on this podcast, as well as occasionally, if I get into some really long conversations, knocking doors, I start talking about how, well, these, the first step is to acknowledge that these are actually like national problems that we should be dealing with on a national level. But we can do, we should do something if that's not going to happen on the national level. Right now, under the current administration, we should do what we can on a local level. Um, but you're actually running to, uh, like have power at the highest levels of government. Uh, so, yeah, how does this look? What does this look like? What is addressing our housing crisis, our sort of crisis of poverty in general, look like on a national level? Yeah, and it's a really good point because it's really hard for cities to come up with the money. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I there's a school board member I was talking to in Chimicum on the peninsula, and she was saying, and it's the same for school boards as for city councils. It's like she said that it feels like quicksand, and you never get stable f- footing because you can never mm. find the funding that you need. And like when they want to, um, they have to do needed repairs on a school. They try to put forward some uh, measure to be approved by the voters. They always vote it down because they don't want more taxes, so they mm. had to just close a school. And and um, put two school buildings together um, and so that they could fire a principal. And th- that's the thing with city councils, with local governments, like they have limited funds. They don't, uh, you know, like the federal government issues currency. It sets interest rates. Mm-hmm. Like yep. It has a yep. lot more power than city yep. council, um, than city governments. And they have to make do with the limited um, finite amount that they have. Um, but it's really a false scarcity. Like the federal government could provide a lot more money to cities. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um like if you think Control about the most powerful currency <clears throat> in the world. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I think it's just really uh, backwards that housing policy that we do not give more money to empower cities to take care of the crisis. But then also that we don't have these national policies like we could have national rent control. You know, Bernie Sanders came out for it. I believe AOC did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been in touch with the people who informed um, Bernie and on his policy. And like it was a national coalition of people who put t- put this together. They call it the Homes Guarantee. So it's rent control and then also accompanied with um, 12 million million new units of social housing in the next 10 years. That's how much we're short. So some of that would be new construction, some would be rehabbing. Um, but it all interplays because um, you know, I'm also supporting the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And the Green yeah. New Deal includes a federal jobs guarantee. So mm-hmm. a lot of those jobs could be constructing all of this, mm-hmm. um, like living wage union jobs to do all this construction and then having it be a uh, carbon neutral housing because buildings are a major source of emissions. And so it gets to be really exciting because then you can, you know, when the federal government, instead of spending billions and billions and billions and trillions on, um, new airplanes on uh, all the new stuff we need to continue our regime change yeah. wars overseas and instead put it into uh, making our, our the people of the country's lives better. Um, there's just like so much that could be done. Um, and it's just kind of maddening to realize, you know, like I've been talking to um, some MMT economists, modern monetary theory, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, if you think about it, like we did went into World War II gung-ho uh, right after the Great Depression. And how did we do that? Like everybody was too broke to tax. Like they didn't have any money to tax. Mm-hmm. That's not how we funded it. We funded it because we have, um, we came together and we decided like we used the public money and did it. And we can do that same thing now. Yeah. yeah. What it turns out to is a state, like you can actually, uh, because you can mobilize people and resources, you can actually just tell people to make things too. Like, I mean, this, this question of money really is like a false question in a lot of ways. But I think the thing that's interesting is, is that, you know, during the original New Deal, a lot of the public housing was built, you know, by people in New Deal programs, right, who were putting to work, right? And 
Uh, we had this opportunity in 2008 where we had people all being thrown out of their houses. We had, um, you know, mass unemployment, particularly among construction workers, right? And it's always one of those like opportunities that's just completely unseized, right? Of we could have had a serious housing program and just didn't. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> just gave ten trillion dollars to banks. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, I mean, so I I think that's interesting and. Um, and I just want to tie this back to the point you brought about like housing being this local issue, which is I think part of this is this little like shuffle game that the right and people who believe in austerity politics kind of play on all of us, which is, you know, housing is a local issue for city governments to decide until the city government decides they want rent control. Then the, the you know, housing, you know, the real estate interests in Seattle will ensure that a state law gets passed that makes it a state issue, right? Yeah, right. And then if we fight it <laughs> at the state level, right, they'll make it a county issue or they'll push it to the federal level yeah. or whatever. And so I think that, too, it, it kind of is pointless to get lost in these, like, is it this issue or that issue, right? I think you just mm -hmm. have to fight for it, right? Yeah, and just find what combination works, like this kind of philosophical states' rights stuff. It's like, it's only mm -hmm. states' rights when it it's what you want. And then... <laughs> When it comes to like abortion, suddenly we need to go federal. It's not a state yeah. issue anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's just, yeah, I think it's kind of just a, you know, philosophical, endless discussion where mm -hmm. it's for me, it's really like we have like millions of people who need housing. Um, lots of people in my district. What's the best way we can do it through combination of, you know, local, federal, state? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I, I don't nerd out because I'm above that, but I'm very excited to hear you talk about modern monetary theory and something I've sort of harped on in this podcast. What is, once you get into Congress, inevitably, um, so how, what is the narrative? How do we combat this narrative? Like, uh, so the, the debt, the national debt has been the sort of meaningless, inane cudgel that the right and for some reason, uh, the Democrats have used against basically every, anything. It's, it's perfect because it just encapsulates everything. It's like, no, we have to spend way less money as a federal government. What's the path? What's the like rhetorical or strategic or whatever path to writing this narrative to where we, as a country, can understand, no, we have this enormous actual real wealth at our disposal that we can use to... Uh, to level the playing field to enrich everyone in this country and the fucking world uh, rather than just rich people. And that's by spending U.S. dollars because we fucking make them in a printing press. Yeah, and it's it's really um, it's tough because the metaphor that they use on the right and then conservative Democrats is like, well, it's like a household it's budget and the table. kitchen <laughs> table. Fucking kitchen yeah. table. It's like, except it. like when I if I'm in a ton of debt, I can't just print my own money to pay it off. Like that's yeah. not <laughs> the yeah. metaphor doesn't work. But there's not the best I've heard, and I've talked to a couple MMT economists, and one of them was like, okay, think about it. Here's one that maybe you can tell people, but it's not as simple as the kitchen table thing. But it's kind kind of helps is uh so you go to like a sports game and you buy uh like tickets uh to purchase popcorn or whatever like you give them money they give it to you and then you give it back to them to get the popcorn what do they do with it it's just this kind of like circular yeah, economy. Oh yeah, they yeah. can just create more of those and more of those. Yeah. And uh he's like we do like do they burn it? And he said <clears throat> the Fidel Kaboob and he's like we do actually, I said, I was telling this to a constituent and uh, who I met on Twitter and she was like, we've been, uh, you know, my mom and I have been talking about this and we're just kind of disturbed because, um, you know, our whole lives we thought that like 
you know, it was our patriotic duty in a way, like to pay taxes. That's kind of like the the left's version of your patriotic duty is, well, yeah, yeah I, I may not send my kids to public school or I may not have kids, but I pay taxes because I'm a good citizen. That's the thing I do. She's like, but it turns out that's not the way it works. Like, what do they do with the extra money? And I asked him and he was like, they burn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they literally burn it or they'll mm-hmm. just shred it or give it away as souvenirs mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I think... To actually, I think you have to go really deep to change the narrative and start talking about why they burn it, and that's inflation, right? And start talking. I think you actually have to go to the like the root of why um, they actually don't want us to spend more money, and that's because they don't want their the money they hold in in dollars to be less valuable. And once you ex- start saying, well, if inflation was if there was more inflation it would make rich people less rich and it would make you less poor because your debt would shrink and that that's the only thing that's stopping us from spending more money as a federal government um i think you start to see that um spending more dollars and go and more federal debt um is really just a way to redistribute wealth you know i think i think you have to start that that broadly yeah, and I think, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about the metaphor. I haven't been able to think of one that's as neat and easy to understand as the household budget, the kitchen table. But mm-hmm. one thing that this does... That's what's great about the right. Like, yeah. I don't care if it actually is, means Makes anything. Any yeah. Sense. Yeah. Like, what's yeah. the dumbest, simplest thing we can say? Yeah, it's frustrating. And one thing, though, that resonates and is like really easy to understand and say quickly is like, okay, we bailed out Wall Street. D- did our taxes go up? Like what mm-hmm. happened to our taxes after that? They didn't go up. So how mm-hmm. did we pay for it? Yeah. They yeah. just they printed the money. Yeah. And Ooh, we, this is see this is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so or we can say like Great Depression. We then had to send millions of soldiers overseas. We had to construct thousands of planes. We you know, Detroit stopped producing cars for consumers. Uh, it only produced airplanes. How did we do all of that when people were living in shanty towns? And there was literally we could not tax them because they had no money. We would just like tax tax of nothing they didn't have anything Mm -hmm. how did we do it like we created the money Um, yeah and And i mean that era it's it's sort of uh uh important you know historical benchmark or even metaphor to use too right because the other part of it is that when the federal government saw that people were unemployed it was able to just snap its fingers and be like you know we can just give them jobs right like, like this idea we live under this mystical belief that we're all beholden to the market, right? And if, you know, the market demands a 6% unemployment rate, well, then that's what we just have to do. And that, that's just how people have to live, right? If, you know, sales can be so expensive or tokens can be so expensive, we have people living on the streets. So, I mean, what can we all do? We're all just beholden to it. And the pressure is such an interesting thing because they literally came in like, no, like, I mean, society is a social organization. We can actually... You know, all these decisions are actually political. We can just choose not to have homeless people, right? We can choose not to have unemployment. We can just choose to build things if we want to build things, right? You know, uh, it, it, you know, in a way, they sort of demystified money in a way that neoliberalism and monetary theories remystified it, right? That money has some 
magical power, some magical inherent thing, as opposed to not just a political decision on whether you want to make it and give it to somebody, right? Like, it has nothing to do with, you know. It is a total yeah. political decision. It's like, who deserves the money, you know? Mm-hmm. Is it uh, the military and rich people, or is it poor people and the working class? You yeah. know, who's uh, worthy enough? Mm-hmm. And if any, I don't know if you guys or anybody listening to this has read George Lakoff, but he talks about, like, the different models on the left and right. And it's like, who's on the right? It's, you know, you work hard, and... Um, um, if you're rich, that means, you know, we're all familiar with this, but like his mm-hmm. book, Moral Politics, goes into it super interesting. But it is a political decision. It's like, who is worthy of receiving money? Well, mm-hmm. it's not poor people. It's it's not people of color. It's, you yeah. know, the rich people who got there because they worked really hard. And so now we should give them even more money. And it's just maddening to realize that the scarcity is total bullshit. And yeah. that like the person, somebody told me uh, that her mom who lives on the peninsula is um, <clears throat> living on a fixed income and has to choose between paying her housing and paying her prescriptions. And it is, there's literally no reason for it to be that way. It mm-hmm. is a total nonsensical bullshit construct. <laughs> there's yeah. no yeah. reason that she has to do that. It's completely yeah. maddening to realize. Well, there's no good yeah. reason. No, yeah. no good yeah, reason. Yeah, well, no moral There's some bad reasons. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah and I think... rich people exist. <laughs> yeah, and when, when we look in these crises, whether it be 2008 or the Great Depression, right, the other thing that we see is that when the state wants to accomplish a goal, right, and that goal is large, it sheds the pretense of these sort of market, you know, fundamentalisms, right? So it completely sheds the pretense of austerity in the face of the 2008 housing crash and just dumps money on the banks, right, because yeah. they know where their bread is buttered. But again, during the New Deal or whatever, when the state wanted to fight this war and it felt that it had to, um, it just mobilized the things and did them, right? And it actually shed its market pretenses and was like, you know what? We're actually not going to have competition. We're going to have price controls because that's way more efficient. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, and, and so it is kind of, again, I think it's one of these like interesting metaphors that some people people want to get, you know, sometimes want to give it up because, of course, the 30s were a racist time and all this, a lot of horrible things happened in the 30s too. But I think some of those things are important to remember, right? Like, you know, there was a time where we decided that, you know, the market doesn't have to rule our lives. And we actually decided that it's actually really inefficient to let it rule our lives too. Like, it actually makes our lives much more miserable in the end. But. Yeah, definitely. And it's a total fiction. I mean, just <laughs> we don't we don't have a free market. And I think yeah. it was Hickenlooper had a tweet recently where he's like, what we need is more free market, you know, like more uh, more of a free market and tax incentives. I'm like that's that's <laughs> self-contradiction, you idiot. Come yeah, on. Yeah. You can't you want tax incentives and a free market. That's an oxymoron. Yeah. You just you're just blatantly putting it out there. What we want is uh. like free market rigged for us and yeah. the rest of you can suck. Well, well, it was interesting that the Cold War completely wove together what would become like neoliberal economics and um, like right evangelicalism, because under neoliberalism, the market really is just a religious symbol, right? Like it's a mystical force, right? And that's why it doesn't have a, that's why you can say that, right? Because it it doesn't have a form. It doesn't have like anything like that, right? So of course you can say, well, we need free market and we need tax incentives, you know, because it one is a thing that we pray to and who knows what it looks like. And the other is the thing that we, is the fruit that it gives us. Yeah. <laughs> but all, all of this yeah. is kind of going to something foundational that you have on your uh, campaign page, which is that this lie that things take time, um, that we just have to wait. And this Obama incrementalism is sort of hogwash and we can have the future that we want today. We just have to do it. Um, and so, I mean, on that note, I'm wondering maybe 
if you could tell us a little bit about Derek Kilmore. Um, I know in my reading, he was endorsed by, he, he was one of the most pro-business Democrats in Olympia when he was one of the uh, state Congress people. And then the Seattle Times also hailed him as a problem solver who can be bipartisan. Oh, a reformer with <coughs> results. Cool. And I know, again, <laughs> reading through um, some of your proposals and uh, your campaign materials, that he has some questionable, uh, he's received some questionable uh, contributions. So can you tell us, like, how he fits into this, sort of this picture? Yeah, definitely. And... I mean, he's the ninth most conservative Democrat in the House, and that's in GovTrack.us ranking. He is a he's the chair of the New Democrats Coalition, which is the major pro-business conservative Democrat caucus in Congress. And um, in that position, he fundraises millions of dollars, which he then distributes to himself and other establishment politicians, the DCCC, state parties, etc. He also belongs to the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So you're fans of that. (laughs) Anybody not familiar? It's funded by dark money and Republican Mm -hmm. billionaires, and it works to advance uh, conservative policies and um, it's awful and there's he voted to cut food stamps for 1.7 million people he refuses to support Medicare for all or the Green New Deal um, he's a he's just a very conservative Democrat and mm-hmm. he says the right things about social issues um, but he in so many ways is just Republican light and uh, mm-hmm. there's not really an excuse for it like our district has had a Democratic representative since the 60s uh, it's mm-hmm. very blue like even in the Republican so, so revolution even in a safe seat yeah <laughs> conservative interesting this is a new story i'm hearing yeah it's just it's i mean there's no no reason for him to be that conservative and our district is also very working class and blue collar and uh we we would really benefit from having a federal jobs guarantee Mm health care for everyone major issue across the district is addiction Mm -hmm. and there are people literally dying in line waiting for uh, detox rehab treatment um, like we, we need it. And so this kind of incremental as well to be more realistic, like what you, how can you go to church every Sunday and talk about realism when people are dying? Like that's morally unrealistic. Sure. Yeah. I feel like, like Washington state, I mean, we talk about this on the Seattle level, but Washington state, this is obviously true of where, um, I think in the rest of the country, like you'll have, you've got all these congressional seats where the Democrats are like, well, we have to run the most conservative Democrat possible because it's the only way to win this. But here in Washington, you for some reason, you almost don't even have to do that. You, you run uh, conservatives who would be Republicans in any other place, and you just pretend that they're not conservative uh yeah. like that's what and the seattle city council you know yeah. our mayor here you know these are people yeah. who in a different context would just be republicans and that's you know that's this well, um i mean this is the state that had the senator for 40 years that on the floor of the senate they would call him they would call him up as the senator from bowen like <laughs> i mean you know what a joke but yeah yeah, yeah i mean yeah it's just weird it's, yeah. it's part of this this bizarre fiction oh, that you know, uh, we like to tell about ourselves here that mm-hmm. this is some, you know, progressive uh, stronghold or something. And well, it and could be, but, you know, it is that has been co-opted completely by conservatives and, and corporatists. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we Washington State, with the exception of Pramila Jayapal, actually 
Democrats and Republicans alike is a very conservative delegation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like we, Pramila Jayapal's our progressive, the lone progressive. Yeah. And it's really sad um, because, you know, the Washington State Democratic Party platform is very progressive. It calls for single payer health care. But then, you know, their representatives, except for Jayapal, uh, don't support it. And then when we say, OK, well, let's run somebody like me or, or others who are running against like, oh, how dare you? It's like mm. I'm more Democratic than he is. I support <laughs> Medicare for all. Like I <laughs> go down all the list of your own platform and I'm more of a Democrat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, but you won't get the money, though. I, I, no. yeah, I think we all know <laughs> where that's coming from. But, yeah. But uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think the thing about your opponent voting to uh, pull food stamps is interesting and probably a good inroads to talk about a particular town in your district, right? Which you brought up, you know, Aberdeen, 16,000 people, 1,000 of which are homeless. It's this town that I think is uh, like an absolute fact in America and has been talked about for maybe, you know, ever since Trump got elected, talked about incessantly, which is these rural towns that are, are more or less dying and have been dying for decades where there's mass poverty and like not a lot of work or anything like that. And, you know, the national narrative has been for some reason that means that they all want to vote Republican. But obviously you have a slightly different point of view. And as we see from your, you know, your your uh, opponent, I mean, he he's literally taking food out of the house by pulling food stamps. Right. I mean, yeah, he really is. And it's, you know, I'd, going to Aberdeen, it is really stark. Um, you know, when you have a thousand people homeless in a town of 16,000, it's going to be very stark. You're going to see it. And I went there once, um, for, to, so the Washington poor people's campaign is they have a very active uh, group in Aberdeen and, um, they do, it's called uh, chaplains on the Harbor. And I'd recommend actually they have a, they just started a farm that's, uh, started, run, founded, worked on by, um, poor people and people who have been incarcerated and they do CSA share. So everybody go check it out, get a CSA cool. share. And yeah. uh, anyway, I went to a uh, food bank that they were doing. And then as I was driving out of Aberdeen, it was a really hot day and the sun was beating down and I came up to a busy intersection and there was a guy uh, just sitting cross-legged on a manhole smack dab in the middle of the intersection with sweat pouring down his face, down his body, just sitting there. And then in the cross, I was at a red light just watching this and and then the, the cross street had the green light and the cars were just would just come up, go around him, keep going. And uh, I just when I had the green light rolled up to him, I was like, are you OK? And um, I gave him it's like two dollars for the bus. But it's like, what what do you have to be going through to just mm -hmm. sit cross legged on a manhole in the middle of traffic? And you're just like, this This is what I'm doing now. Like, I'm so mm -hmm. drunk or so high or so depressed and suicidal that mm -hmm. I do not care if I get run over just sitting here. And that's the kind of thing. And so all this incremental bullshit doesn't address, mm -hmm. like, the pervasive despair that people feel. Like, you have to be very despairing to either get that drunk or high or to just sit there and and just let that happen. And it's kind of a symbol of all over the district. Like you cannot get a job working 40 hours a week at minimum wage and live and have a decent life. And yeah. uh, you don't have anything to look forward to. And so all this incrementalist bullshit doesn't address, like, how do we make, how do we create national policies um, and empower localities like cities and counties and states to create, use policy so that people can have a life that they actually yeah. want to live in and not check out of with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
your sort of response to this is, you know, uh, some sort of response of community and compassion or whatever. Empathy, uh, maybe. The Yeah, the, cons- the conservative response, you know, you actually tweeted out at, uh, at one point uh, from one of the council members. I believe his name is Karen Rowe, but, you know, we'll double check that later. <laughs> but Rowe, uh, you know, and a city council meeting says, we're not entitled to get something for the mere fact that we are alive, right? That's Which, exactly the conservative thing in a nutshell. It's like, yeah. actually, we are. We're breathing. Mm-hmm. And policy is to show that we care about you and we don't want you to just die in a gutter. It's just insane. Yeah, well, I think it's the deeply inhuman and inhumane sort of politics that we've lived under for 40 years, right? And have bashed into our heads. Yeah, and this, this reaction yeah. you're having to this this person in the street is one of empathy and you know it's easy to say though that the opposite reaction of saying well you don't deserve anything for being alive is a conservative one but and i mean it is but it's also what we think of in this town ultimately in seattle here as the liberal response Mm because again we have this very confused idea of what where we stand on politics where people you know Mm -hmm. but here we have um the Seattle is a becoming like a national poster city for sort of um antagonism of of the homeless uh yeah. and demonization and we had cuz we have this this perfect uh liberal managerial uh ethic of meritocracy where that embodies the way we look at everything which is well, yeah, you can't get something for free. You, If you are in that place that you are, you must deserve it because, you know. There's no other way you'd be there. Yeah, if you, yeah, it's it's self reinforcing. Uh, he, he should have chosen to go to an, a coding academy as opposed yeah. to sit in the middle. Yeah, of have the you road, courted right? Amazon for Aberdeen <laughs> or yeah. Microsoft? And it's also Facebook. like helps them. Uh, assure themselves that they too are not one paycheck away from total disaster because mm. you know they're good people and mm-hmm. they went to a coding academy and mm-hmm. you know yeah. like they think amazon's great and they get their groceries delivered by fucking drone or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah so like that could never happen to them yeah right well and i think um to you know in your platform you bring up uh under the sort of medicare for all you know which you certainly support uh you bring up this issue of free treatment for an expanded treatment of people that have like drug issues, but also free treatment of mental illness issues and things like that too. And I think those kind of go together. So those are two extremely uh, stigmatized like facts of American society, right? Both issues that are caused by just what a fucking cruel, awful place we live in. Uh, But they're stigmatized and then used to beat the victims of our economy relentlessly. Like, so in Seattle, we have the awful Como Seattle is dying you know, fucking movie, and they just had another one come out yesterday. Which, you know, oh, uh, so they're doubling but, down on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yikes. Oh, yeah. I haven't to, seen the new to, one to the point that it's like one Don't. third footage from the original. Oh, but it's basically uh, the uranium it's a, it's a powering. The, it's, a it's it's the Rocky <laughs> Five of, <laughs> <laughs> but the but yeah, um, yes, yeah, so I, I I think it's really important to one guarantee that as a free uh, service, right? Because one, you're trying to help people who have been like essentially victimized by the world that we live in at the same time too. Um, it's important about lifting the stigma on, you know, mental health issues and drug issues and things like that too. So I was wondering if you maybe speak on that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Medicare for all needs to include mental health treatment and drug and alcohol treatment. 
and like across my district, you know, the, I mentioned the poor people's campaign, the pastor there, uh, she actually has tattooed on her arm, the initials of people that she pastored who have, have died, um, mm-hmm. waiting in line for treatment and, uh, like addiction and alcoholism, mental health, like these are very common issues in American society. And it's just kind of absurd that we stigmatize it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in Tacoma, that's where I got sober. I've been sober for almost three years from alcohol and I'm open about it. I didn't want voters. I didn't want it to come out with like opposition, dig it up or whatever, because mm-hmm. Tacoma small and, uh, you know, recovery community is small, but, um, just feel like I was being honest with them, but also like, uh, I have an understanding of what alcoholics and addicts need and I will fight for that and not just allow this endless prevarication and incrementalism because, you know, I do know people who have relapsed and, um, I know people who have died and I've been with a friend of mine who, uh, was trying to get sober for a long time and called me extremely intoxicated. Um, Tacoma Detox is the only place in Tacoma that takes people, um, takes Apple, Apple Health, mm-hmm. uh, the state state healthcare, mm-hmm. and uh, they're always full. And so you have to call them at 12.01 in the morning every day to see if they have a bed. They never do. So I took her to the ER and they kept her overnight. Her blood alcohol was 0.34, lethal is 0.4. So mm-hmm. she was very close. And uh, like you, so if uh, you are at the point she was at, you need to be medically detoxed because if you just stop drinking, you could die. And so she detox typically should be three days, but ER only kept her overnight mm-hmm. until she was sober enough to talk to a social worker and be released, you know, in a state of mind to make a decision. And, uh, so they did that. And then, uh, it was like three weeks before she could get into rehab. And the thing about people like alcoholism, addiction is like when somebody becomes willing, um, you need to make sure they get what they need right then. Um, and not just kind of slip back into it. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, she did end up going into treatment, but it's like this, this is just absolutely insane. We have, it's like getting back to MMT. We have all the resources. We have all the money, like every alcoholic and addict in the district in the entire country could have um, treatment available to them when they need it, um, as long as they need it to get clean and sober, stay clean and sober. And we just don't have it because of this fiction of incrementalism and, you know, the household budget. Yeah. So um, we're all going to choke on the ashes of civilization anyway, (laughs) unless uh, maybe you could talk to us about, um, you know, another issue that we talk about in this campaign here in the city has been talked about a lot you know because the certain good candidates want to enact a (laughs) seattle green new deal but once again this is a good thing we should do but that really needs to be solved on a global level with um in with a full commitment of the u.s government um talk to us about uh yeah climate change yeah. Climate change, good or bad? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, absolutely good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pros, more beach space. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, climate, the climate crisis and with the 2030 deadline, you know, that's part of the reason I decided to run. Um, like the advice I was given was like, oh, that's great. You want to run, you know, just spend the next 10 years building up your resume. Um, I was like, we'll be way past 2030 by then. And Mm -hmm. we'll still, instead of a 48 year old Derek Kilmer, we'll have a 58 year old Derek Kilmer telling us we can't do it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like we need, we needs to happen now. And in my district we're having, um, I think it was here in Seattle as well. It was a year or two ago when there were wildfires in BC and we had, um, ashes falling from the Mm -hmm. sky. And it's like, are we living in a post apocalypse? 
apocalyptic yeah. movie. Like this is real. This is climate. This is climate change happening. And there's also um, there's uh, the Macaw Nation on the northernmost part of the Olympic Peninsula. I was up there for their annual Macaw Days and talking to um, some leaders there, and they were telling me about the issues they're facing. So their school, um, the Macaw Nation school, is in a tsunami zone, and you know tsunamis are getting it worse as the sea level rises and uh, their current tsunami evacuation plan is for the kids to just uh, run up run up a hill a mile and cool. try to outrun the tsunami that should work yeah and like they need money to relocate the school and that should mm-hmm. be part of the green new deal and the village of tohola of the quinault nation um they've been there forever um it's a, like they're losing so much by having to leave that space but they have to because of rising sea levels it's, gonna, it's costing over a million dollars to relocate the village in aberdeen i was out canvassing and I was at a low-income apartment complex, and uh, this woman told me that every time the river floods, um, which is going to happen more uh, with mm-hmm. climate change, every time that happens, it sends sewage up around the apartment building, mm-hmm. uh, like on the sidewalk. So this is stuff that we really need to fix. And I think you're really right. Like it's good that cities sh- cities should do as much as they can, but it is a national and global problem. And to do things like a federal jobs guarantee to transition us to a fossil fuel-free economy, like that's a mm-hmm. major undertaking. It is. Like uh, as they talk about, you know, World War II scale mobilization, yeah. and well, I love the Green New Deal for so many different reasons. Like one being that it actually um, is about the frontline communities, uh, people of color, poor people, the working class. They don't, there's not treated as like an afterthought. It's mm-hmm. inherently part of it, and it also with the federal jobs guarantee. Um, it's just an ingenious combination of so many things we need, like good union jobs and then a major overhaul to address the climate crisis. Yeah, but I think, you know, people maybe even now are completely underestimating the scale of what we're talking about, right? Because you talk about, you know... uh, you have these tribes feel that you know we need that need to move right like they need to be relocated because of what climate change is going to do but whole urban areas millions of people right yeah, like Miami be, yeah relocated. I mean, Miami's dealing with that right now basically yeah and this one of these things that if we continue to exist under this sort of neoliberal austerity logic uh is going to be impossible right i mean you know, Seattle can't even build like a simple bit of mass, mass transit because it's just impossible <laughs> under the current logic, right? <laughs> I mean, so what we what we need, I, I think the thing that's interesting about the Green New Deal is you actually do have to fundamentally change how you think about politics and how things get done, right? I mean, we're not moving Miami. Can we just <laughs> and and uh, being budget hawks? Do you, do you think right? if we ask Elon you know? Musk really nicely, he might be able to figure it out for us? Oh, he's a nice guy, and he's really rich, so he must be really wise he's yeah, the tony stark exactly. of our age right i definitely want to be on an elon musk branded rocket <laughs> well, <laughs> I, directly into the i sun. mean i do have to say <laughs> it's really disheartening uh to hear that those climate impacts are hitting places like aberdeen i mean mm-hmm. the coast makes sense but like aberdeen flooding i mean those are the stories that we've yeah. been hearing about in miami but that makes sense because it's you know like at sea level, and so honestly, if, if it's well, yeah, it's no. I gotta like, say, it's no great loss. <laughs> First off, but uh, <laughs> it, it will impact a lot of people. Um, but I think that's the thing. It's kind of one of those invisible phenomenon for yeah. a lot of people, and so it's an easy thing to abstract. And like, yes, we had a bad summer, but like this summer wasn't as bad as they said. And so, mm-hmm. I, I feel like the ur- the real urgency of this is is diminished. Um, and the more that we can share these stories of real impacts, like in our state, uh, maybe will be helpful. So, yeah. 
Well, I, and the thing about Aberdeen is interesting too, because kind of like what's happening internationally, the same thing is going to happen domestically, which is the people who are going to get really fucked by climate change are the people that we've already given up on and right. said, fuck you too yeah. and like push to the margins. And, you know, much like that guy sitting in the middle of the road in Aberdeen, he did like some empathy in his life. Like, uh, the, you know, we're going to have to actually like develop empathy for other people, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I just imagine like what if we just continue with this austerity logic and the scarcity and just the neoliberalism, let it keep happening. What do they hope will happen? It's like we just have waters covering everything except you know, the high points in America where the rich people retreat to and have mm-hmm. the islands they always wanted. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Seasteading. <laughs> yeah. Seasteading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The seastead right. will be real. <laughs> I think that's um, important to, to think of it that way in that, you know, it's really not about um, necessarily convincing people anymore at this point. All the, peop- all the people in power know exactly what is going down. Mm-hmm. Every rich person, every corporate CEO, every politician in the world. Um, it's just about seizing that power and yeah. taking it away from the people who don't who yeah. don't care because it's not going to meaningfully affect their lives, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it, yeah, it's time to give up on the idea that they just don't get it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and I think maybe the perfect example, which Adobe Klein actually brings up in her book, but I was in um, South Texas when Katrina happened, right? And I remember uh, having friends who had gone to the Ninth Ward afterwards and stuff like that. And showing these pictures and, you know, the devastation in the Ninth Ward and the poor areas of New Orleans. And then they were showing these photos of, you know, <laughs> one of the wealthy neighborhoods of New Orleans that had this, like, eight-tier, like, water buffer system that was, like, scientifically designed to, like, repel rising water <laughs> and all that shit. And their neighborhood was fine. And, you know, they had their own police that shot at people who tried to, like, march across a bridge into the neighborhood. So, I mean, it's one of those things of, like, the plan's already there. They've already fortified, you know, the thing. But uh, the rest of us, you know, <laughs> they're not going to let us in, right? When yeah. we go knocking on the ARC door, they're not going to open it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think okay. we need to realize well, that How now. pure is your blood, Brian? That, that will be the real question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, no one wants Brian's blood. <laughs> well, you know, it's just I mean, big red. Honestly, uh, uh, as much as everybody hated it, the most prophetic film uh, of our generation is going to turn out to be 2012 because they build the giant arcs for all the rich people. And as the world's burning and drowning, they have all these Chinese workers who build the arcs and they literally kick them off the fucking arcs. All the rich people kick the fucking workers off the arcs (laughs) so they can take off and survive and kill every poor person on the planet and continue their way of life. And that is going to be the most prophetic movie of our time. (laughs) Yeah. John Cusack classic. Go look at awesome. us, guys. Yeah, that, wasn't, that, wasn't that Roland? That sounds really it's fun. A, Emmerich? Roland Emmerich uh, yeah. our, should be our most beloved director. Don't watch yeah. the movie. Just look into the future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't worry. You don't have to watch the movie. You're going to live it in about 20, well, 30 years. We, we've, been, we've been talking for a long time. Do we want to talk about Tacoma in general? I guess I would say... One thing that I found really interesting thinking about the district is so Grays Harbor uh, went for Trump and it was the first time that Grays Harbor had gone for the Republican president in a long time, like 70, 80 years. And so the centrists are saying, of course, that means we need to go even more Republican light. But I have friends out there and one friend who grew up there, all his... um, family's Republican. He's a big Bernie supporter, um, but he's 
like he's part of the culture. He loves it there. He said the peninsula is not getting more Republican. It's getting more populist. Mm -hmm. And they chose the option that they thought was the populist option that was going to, that was speaking to their needs. And so to people, it's like, oh, the mythical Trump voter and and what are we going to do and all this stuff. And, you know, people outside of Seattle maybe think, well, this, we're not Seattle. Like we, we can't run a democratic socialist and all this stuff. And like even my district, people say, oh, well, that's not Seattle. We can't do it. It's like, yes, we can. These are working class policies. And I've been out canvassing with a group working for the Green New Deal in Aberdeen. And their goal is to make sure that the Green New Deal benefits rural Washington and not just the city. So we were going out and asking them, what do you want to be part of the Green New Deal? And we showed them a list of policies and it was stuff like uh, single payer health care, federal jobs guarantee, more union jobs, all of this stuff. And even people who voluntarily, we did not ask them, they just volunteered and told us they voted for Trump, looked at it and said, well, I don't know. It's hard to say because I really like all of these. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing I would say. It's like it does get very um, like it can feel kind of crushing under the weight of like the neoliberalist endless austerity like how can the corporate onslaught of money over our politics but people want a change and like we're in this amazing moment with like people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and like DSA members across the country where like we are have the working class politics and when we talk to the working class and tell them about it they respond and when we go and we're not with this elitist democratic look I have a PhD so I understand what's wrong with your life better than you do and you actually Mm -hmm. don't even have it that bad because GDP blah 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 like if we go in and we (laughs) just talk to them (laughs) and we're like you should be able to get an education if you want one and not have to live in your car and you Mm -hmm. should have all these things and so that's what I would say is like there is hope and uh, it's with Mm -hmm. like the kind of DSA working class democratic socialist like true progressive policies and um i think it's that we can do a lot yeah Yeah, it turns out it's not that hard to sell something that's actually good (laughs) exactly yeah yeah Yeah, i'm gonna give you a dignified life is not a tough sell yeah Yeah, the democrats have spent you know the last uh four decades trying to sell dog shit to people well they're saying we'll give you the life you deserve (laughs) yeah Yeah, no they are exactly exactly that and then what yeah, the uh, yeah, you deserve an awful, miserable, <laughs> yeah, uh, unless you undignified life. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's two you know important things to remember too. As much as maybe people are uh, depressed at Trump winning or winning Ever Grace Harbor or whatever, right, is that the vast majority of people still don't vote right because they hate both parties because both parties offer them dog shit. And so there's you know lots of people to win out there. And the other thing is that. Um, you know, uh, national representatives from smaller areas or whatever can have a, a big impact on the national scale. And AOC and Illinois are both like very good re- representatives of that. There's a lot of things that we're talking about nationally mm-hmm. that are, we're only talking about because they got elected, right? And even though the, we're far from Brooklyn or Minnesota, right? That it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah, so. definitely. Well, cool. yeah. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming on the boat, um, especially for making that long trek, having to stand all the way on the light rail. <laughs> I know they had to stand all the way. <laughs> I, was like, I know you had to stand all the way on the bus, but why'd you stand on top of the bus? That's the part that we don't <laughs> yeah. understand. It's confusing. Yeah. Um, so, people, if people want to follow your campaign, they can check your check out your website, which we'll link to, which is Rebecca for Wa, like W A. And uh, there's a link to volunteer there, and there's also a link to donate. And it looked like all of your social handles were the same, Rebecca Ferwa on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll link to all those. Was there anything else that um, you would like to shout out or plug now? 
Tacoma, it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. Oh yeah, Tacoma, check it out. Maybe we'll, <laughs> maybe we'll sail down to Tacoma and do a show from there. You know, yeah, we're yeah. Sail, sail down I five. You were joking about that, Brian, <laughs> weren't you? Oh yeah, yeah. We were going to so Rebecca you. driving up here. We should sail <laughs> right. the boat down. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, Thank you. Uh, yeah. Everyone, um, get excited about Rebecca's campaign and. Uh, we should actually primary all of these shitty demos. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for yep, doing, we should. <laughs> doing this all in service. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks. <laughs>